23 this morning. I got to say, you guys look like people who lost at least an hour of sleep last night. (laughs) By the way, what did the wall clock do after it was adjusted for daylight savings time? It hung around. I mean, what did you expect it to do? It hung around. Here I thought a little humor might get you guys awake, but you guys are just, you're hopeless apparently. I said a little humor, very little. Genesis 23. So now we come to this portion of Genesis where you have the first generation now kind of fading out. You have Abraham and Isaac fading out. You have the normal course of life. You have now Abraham and Isaac have come down from the mountain, and and Isaac is now a 37-year-old man. Abraham's 137, and Sarah is 127. And you've got death, marriage, you've got more death, you've got birth, just the normal stuff that you and I live through, the normal courses of life, right? Stuff that we don't necessarily talk about, but stuff that's real life stuff. And through it all, we're going to find that God is faithful and that God is going to fulfill His promise and His covenant. It doesn't just apply to Abraham and just to Sarah. It's going to continue to be fulfilled and and kept with, with future generations. But this morning we deal with a subject that we don't like to talk about. We deal with death. Death is a horrible enemy. Death is a horrible thing. I can remember many memories from my childhood, but the most poignant one was when I stood at my grandfather's casket when I was about seven years old, and I just cried my my eyes out. It was my first experience with death. And I'm grateful that my parents didn't shelter me from it because it's a part of life, isn't it? It's a part of life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, Paul there writes and he says, the very last enemy that Christ is going to destroy is what? You know what it is? It's death. Like if I were writing the scripture, if I were doing it God's way, that should have been the first one destroyed. But it's the last one he's going to destroy. The very last thing is death. If we turn this morning, and I would ask you to turn, keep your finger here, and turn, I want you to see in Hebrews 11 what what is said here about dying. Hebrews chapter 11. So as the writer of Hebrews is writing here, he, he references Sarah in verses 11 and 12, and he says in verse 13, These all died in faith. What a great thing to say about somebody. I mean, if we're going to have to talk about death, let's at least talk about it in in a positive way. And the way that we could talk about it in a positive way is dying in faith. See, there's two ways to die. You might think natural causes and unnatural. Yeah, you can look at it that way. But in my mind, the two ways to die are this. In faith or not in faith. 
And what we have here described for us, as the writer of Hebrews talks about it, these all died in faith. Why? Because they not, not having received the, the, the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In other words, they died in faith because they weren't just looking at the here and now. They were looking at something far greater, something out there that's better. And it's a lesson to us. And it's interesting to me that as the writer of Hebrews talks about dying in faith, he puts it on the heels of Sarah when he describes Sarah. Sarah is Abraham's life partner. He, she's his friend. She, she's the one who's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 2. If we had time, we'd look at it. She's mentioned along with Abraham as the one for all of Israel to look at to be reminded of God's faithfulness. She's the one mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 5 and 6 to wives as a model of a woman of inner beauty and character as a wife. She's the one who's mentioned. If you're going to make a Mount Rushmore of, of influential women in the Bible, I think you have to put Sarah on the, on the mountain. You do. She's a, she's a highly influential woman. She's, a, she's an amazing woman. And now we come to the part where she exits this life, 127 years. That's old, isn't it? And let's be honest, death is not something we choose to think about. In fact, if you were debating this morning whether to come out because of the roads, you might have even known that I was going to talk about death, you might have, been, you might have made this decision. If he's talking about dying, I'm staying home. You're laughing because you know it's true. Don't want to hear about dying. I've done too many funerals in the course of my ministry. Too many funerals. And at just about every funeral that I preach, I share this verse. It comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2. And there it says this, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. The writer there, as he's writing this, is thinking this, you are better off to go to a funeral than you are to go to a wedding. Now, some of you who hate weddings, you're like, yeah, I'll go to a funeral every time. He says, you're better off to go to a funeral than you are to go to a wedding. Why? For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And let's understand something. When we're confronted with death, it makes us think about what? The thing we don't want to say right now, but you're all thinking it. When you and I are confronted with death, what are we also confronted with? The fact that you and I are one day going to die. And that's why the writer of Ecclesiastes said this, it's, it's better to go to the house of mourning. Because you see, there's wisdom in considering death and there's wisdom in preparing to die. Sarah died in faith, and that's how to be prepared to die, is to die in faith. And so now, I want you to follow along with me as I read in Genesis chapter 23. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. 
Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron or Hebron, however you choose to say it, both are right, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites and the the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a bearing place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried his buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Ecclesiastes 3-4 says this, that there's a time to mourn and a time to weep. There's a time to mourn and a time to weep. What's interesting is, I think this is the only case, I I searched, and this is the only one I can find, this is the only case where we have Abraham weeping. This is the only case in recorded scripture where we have Abraham crying. We We don't have other occasions shared where he does weep, but it's going to take the loss of a spouse of well over 60 years for Abraham to weep. When you look at verse 2, it's really interesting in the Hebrew language. It's really interesting in the Hebrew language what, what Moses is trying to convey here. Literally, if we were to read it in the Hebrew, where our English says, Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her, the Hebrew would read something like this, and Abraham gave himself over to the business of mourning. He gave himself over to the business of mourning. Interesting way to put it. In my course of study this week, and in, and in the course of ministry, I have encountered people and I have encountered Christian leaders who have written things, and, and I have just even encountered in our own church that some would have said to me at certain points in my, in my ministry here that mourning is weak, that it's unscriptural, and that it's unbiblical. 
That to mourn means that we're not being submissive to God's plans. And God's plans are always good, so we shouldn't cry when He gives and when He takes away. And I would say to that, that's a bunch of bunk, quite honestly. I have been told, I have read, I even read this week, that in the face of loss, we are to be stoic, that we're to be unmoved, we're to be unemotional in the face of death. And I would submit to you that if you can be unemotional in the face of death, there's something wrong with your emotions. This passage and many others would say something totally different, wouldn't they? I think of Jesus going to the tomb of Lazarus, his dear friend, and there he is encountered by people all around him who are mourning. And not once in that account does Jesus say to them, stop crying. He doesn't do that, does he? Can I say this to us this morning? That it is good, that it is healthy, that it is a godly thing to do to mourn the loss of a loved one? Because mourning the loss of a loved one is an indicator of the depth of relationship and an acknowledgement that on this side of eternity, the loss is real. If you can't cry over the loss of someone, then you must not have had much of a relationship with them. And here we have Abraham mourning the loss of his dear wife. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how long he mourns. There's no indication between verses 2 and 3 as to how much time transpires here. There are certain customs that we could probably take our cues from, but I'm not even going to try and do that. I'm just going to say to you that Abraham went in and he went about the business of mourning. Probably all of us in this room have experienced loss in our lifetime. One of the things that strikes me as someone who counsels with people who have experienced loss is this. And in counseling people who have experienced loss and don't really want to acknowledge it, one of the things that strikes me is, is that if you and I don't mourn over the loss, we tend to get angry and bitter, we tend to lash out at others, we tend to blame everyone around us, we tend to think of ourselves as the only one who understands what we're going through. But when we open up and allow ourselves to mourn, what that does is it frees us up to allow the church and our families to be what God's intended them to be, a place of comfort and a place of sharing that burden. You say, PD, you sound all touchy-feely this morning. Well, here's the reality, folks. Death is real, and it's touched every one of our lives, hasn't it? And we better know how to mourn well. We get the laughing part right there in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you know, a time to plan, a time to reap, a time to, you know, do all these other things. But for many of us, we don't get the mourning part right because we think that there's a weakness in mourning. We think that there's something unspiritual about it. And yet, here is this one who God has chosen to use to be the patriarch of his people. And when his wife dies, he mourns. He mourns. There is a time to mourn, but there is also a time to move forward from mourning, is there not? 
And what I love about this is, the way Moses gives this to us is, verse 2, he gives himself to the business of mourning, and now in verse 3, he's going to give himself to the business of living. He's going to go on now, and he's got to live. One of the things that strikes you about mourning, and when you're going through loss, is this. And it's real. I've, I've felt it myself. I've heard others who describe it to me in the same way is, one of the most profound things is, is when you lose someone really dear to you is, is you don't understand why everybody else around you in life just keeps moving forward because you just feel like you're stuck where you are. Anybody else felt that way? Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's one of the things that, 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 that kind of just is a reality of this whole thing. Just because we're mourning the loss of somebody, there's people all around us who are unaffected by that, isn't there? And here's the thing, just because we've experienced loss doesn't mean that we are now exempt from God's call on our life. You see, we're all made to bring glory to the one who made us, and that still must be achieved with our living, right? And so you see Abraham here get on with the business of living. And, and I wrote this in my notes, and, and I don't want it to sound harsh, but it's a, re, it's a reality, and I think we all need to come to grips with it. To never mourn is harmful. Would you agree with me on that? To never mourn is harmful, but to never stop mourning is equally as harmful. It's equally as harmful. And the thing that strikes me here is that there's no formula, and I looked through the scriptures this week looking for something to clue us in on this. There is no formula that God gives us that says, here's the right amount of time to mourn, and here's the right amount of time, and when you stop mourning, and that you move forward on life. There's no formula like that in the scriptures. All I can say, though, is this. The scriptures are clear. There's a time to mourn and give ourselves to the business of it, but there's also a time to move forward from that mourning. So what we see now is Abraham moving forward. This is a really profound chapter of Scripture in Israel's history. Because up to this point, the closest thing we see Abraham owning is possibly an altar in chapter 12 at verse 8 in Bethel. He built an altar in Bethel. He might have owned that, quote unquote. Maybe nobody would touch that because Abraham built it. In chapter 13, we see him build an altar at the Oaks of Mamre, another place where he put down something as a memorial. We saw in chapter 21, just a few weeks ago, that he dug a well at Beersheba, but this is the first instance where this man, who is a sojourner and an alien in a foreign country, actually buys a piece of property. And it's not even for him to live on, it's a, it's a piece of property for his dead to be buried. Notice in verse 4, that as he addresses the Hittites, he even brings this to bear. I'm just a sojourner here. I'm just an alien here. I'm a foreigner among you, and I want to buy a piece of property. I don't know if you've ever been involved in international property transactions, but they're always quite complicated. They are. Because you got, you got rules there, you got the rules that you're dealing under, and, and Abraham's now negotiating to buy a piece of property in a land that, that God has promised to him, but it's not his land. He's not from there, and so he's going to have to go by their customs and by their ways. And so, verse 4, he begins the, prop, the process by respectfully asking for a piece of property. 
what strikes me is about this is, if you've ever experienced profound loss, it has a way of changing you, doesn't it? You ever, you ever dealt with somebody who got really angry after a profound loss and got bitter? That's not Abraham. Abraham still has the grace of God at work in his life, and he goes out and respectfully, and, and, he, and he asks for a piece of property, and the Hittite's response is pretty interesting. They call him a prince of God. Now, don't think for a second that they think that he's some really wonderful, godly, spiritual guy. They just know that this guy is a religious guy, and that's what they're referring to him as here right now. You're just this religious guy that we know about, and, and, and because we like you, you can, you can pick whatever you want. Notice what they say. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. We'll withhold nothing from you. Now, I don't know about you, but I like a deal. Anybody else like a deal? I like a deal. I don't know about you, and I haven't done this recently, but I've talked to a lot of people who have. The business of dying is very expensive, even in our culture right now. It's very expensive. In fact, it's a racket. Abraham could have easily walked out of here with a really sweetheart deal, couldn't he have? Free 99, it doesn't get any better than that. But verse 7, rises and bows, he fits in with the customs, and he says this, if you're willing, verse 8, that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me from Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns, it's at the end of his field, for the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Okay, just think about this, think about negotiation, Okay. So, so Abraham comes in and he says, I want to buy a piece of property, okay? You would expect a good negotiator to come back with, hey, I got this choice piece right here, and you know what? I'm, going to, I'm from New Albany Company, and I'm going to sell it to you for, I don't know, value times three. Does that ring a bell with anybody? No, they say, we're going to give it for you for free. You can just have it. And Abraham says, let me think about that. No, I want to pay full price. What? You want to do what? There's a method, and there's a method and a, and, a, and a reason for why he's doing it this way. And so now he has to get down to the business of negotiating with a certain person. In verse 10, we find out the guy's name is Ephron, and he's sitting with the Hittites at the gate. So this guy is an influential guy. He's sitting at the place where they do business, okay? In, in our way of doing things, if you and I are going to transfer property here in Licking County, it means that we have to go down to, the, to Newark, to the Licking County Courthouse, where we have to transfer the deed and get it stamped and get it recorded. That wasn't done that way here. You had to go to the gate of the city, closest to where you were selling the property, and there the city leaders, you would do all your business in front of the influential people of the city so that they could witness this whole thing, and you would transact your business right there. So Abraham at least understands what he's dealing with here, and publicly he goes to the city gate where there's witnesses, there's nothing hidden, and in verse 11, Ephron now makes his counteroffer. No, I'm going to give it to you for free. I really want you to have it. Now, you might be tempted to think, man, Ephron, he's a great guy. What an amazing guy. He's just going to give away this choice land. But we're going to find Ephron's heart here in just a second, okay? We're going to find out about this guy, okay? So, 
they keep going through this. Verse 13, Abraham says, If you will, hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it for me that I may bury my dead there. And then Ephron answers Abraham, My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth, I don't know, 400 shekels. What? 400 shekels is a lot of shekels. That's a lot of silver. And now you can think, you might be tempted to think, now we're going to get into the dealing part here. Abraham is no way he's paying 400 shekels for this. This is not a legitimate counteroffer. This is, this is like getting involved with gouging for the land. If you also notice, Abraham was only seeking what? What did he want? He wanted a cave. What did he get? He got a cave and a field. So Ephron here is looking to, to, to make a pretty good deal for himself. And Abraham's counteroffer really isn't that great of a counteroffer, verses 12 and 13. Hey, you know what? I'll give you the full price. Not 12 and 13, excuse me, down, down in verses 14 and 15. He says, you know what? Guess what? I'll give you the full price. Verse 16, he listened to Ephron. He weighed out to Ephron the silver that was named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, because shekels weren't coins then like we think of shekels now. Shekel was a, weight, was a unit of weight. So he has to weigh out in front of all the city leaders on a scale that they determined was honest. He weighs out 400 shekels of silver. He hands it over. They make the business transaction complete there. They do it with witnesses. And Abraham walks away with a piece of land. You say, PD, why did you go through that so intensely? Well, because here's the thing. Can anyone now say that Abraham doesn't own that piece of property? No. And this is the very first piece, if you will, of property that God is going to grant to his chosen people, is the cave. It's, it's now in their possession. It's now in their possession and so now, <laughs> Abraham owns his little corner of the promised land, doesn't he? It's really interesting. Hebron in the Bible is a place of significance. It's the burial place for Abraham. It's the burial place for Isaac. It's the burial place for Rebekah. Jacob and Leah are buried there. David was anointed king in Hebron. And if you or I were to travel to the Holy Land today... You know what we would find in Hebron, where the cave supposedly is? We would find a mosque sitting there. And we might be tempted to think, what a horrible injustice. And I would say to you, that's okay, because one day Hebron and that mosque are all going away. Abraham and his descendants weren't attached to the land. He wasn't attached to the cave. The only thing that he was attached to was the wife that was going to be buried in the cave. But the place mattered nothing to Abraham because the Bible records for us he was looking for a better country, a better city. He was looking for something of greater importance. And I have to ask myself, what do we seek? I'll be honest with you, I'm not the kind of guy that likes to go back to graveyards. Maybe you're the kind of person that likes to go to graveyards. I don't. And here's why. The person that I love is not there. They're not there. It's just a stone with a couple words on it that really don't sum up the person's life. 
I would much rather choose to remember the life of that person than I would a place where they're not even at. If we were to drive up to Cleveland, which is a great place to go, and we were to drive to, to, to this address, 12316 Euclid Avenue, you would find yourself in front of the Lakeview Cemetery. Anybody here who has ever been to the Lakeview Cemetery? My family has. Raise your hand, family. The Lakeview Cemetery is notable because people like J.D. Rockefeller are buried there. Many former mayors of the city of Cleveland are married there. And there's one former president buried at this cemetery. Anybody know who it is? If you said Garfield, pat yourself on the back. James Garfield is buried there. And in honor of James Garfield, who, who served like, as president for like that long, they built this gigantic structure that's 180 foot tall and 50 feet round in diameter. This giant round tower is built on the site of the cemetery, and he and his wife and other relatives are buried in the basement of this tower. And I think about that and many other burial places that I've been to. And I want to say this, if you believe that, that all there is is this life and that this life is the best thing you're ever going to have, you will build a large memorial to somebody who dies. You will. But if you really believe that there's a better life, you'll just put a simple little gravestone and remind people that's where they're buried and you will look something towards something that's better, a far greater and better city. I'll be honest with you, one of the saddest things is to drive through a cemetery and see the way that people try to remember their loved ones. Teddy bears and flowers and notes and, and pictures drawn. For somebody who's not there. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Because here's the thing, can, can all the stuff that we leave at a graveside change the destiny of the person who's buried there? Church, can it? Does it change anything? No headstone, no, no amazing statement about the person is going to change their destiny. And Paul in Philippians chapter 3, talking to believers here, says this. Our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For the unbeliever, they can't say that. But for the child of God, you can say that. And when we look at Hebrews chapter 11 and we lay it over Genesis chapter 23, what we understand at the end of Genesis 23 where it says that Abraham goes and he buries Sarah in this cave, we have an understanding of what actually transpires when he buries her. He buries his wife there not thinking that she's staying there. <laughs> because he's looking for a city, a heavenly one that's built by God. 
He's thinking in his mind, much like what Job, who could have been a contemporary of his, we don't know, in Job chapter 19 and verse 25 and 26 says this, I know that my Redeemer lives. In fact, let's just look at that passage. Go with me to Job chapter 19. Job, in the middle of all of his heartache, what's anchoring him? What's keeping him grounded? Job chapter 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Every time I read that passage, I think of the stupid little song I learned in elementary school. The worms crawl in, the worlds crawl out. You know that one? And that's what happens, isn't it? Our bodies are decomposing, they're gone. Our skin is destroyed, but in our flesh, we're going to what? See God. And that is absolutely what is anchoring Abraham right now. Hebrews chapter 11, these all died in faith. Let me give you some examples of some things that were said by well-known believers on their deathbed. And I think it's kind of instructive. Heard of a guy named Adoniram Judson, famous missionary? You ever heard of him? This is what he said in his deathbed. I go with gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. Think about it. Do you remember when you were in elementary school how you ran from that school? Judson said this, I go with gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. It doesn't sound like he really thought that his best life was now, does it? There's a famous Anglican evangelist named Brownlow North. And he wrote this, or he said this on his deathbed, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. That is the verse on which I am dying. One wants no more. I love that. His blood cleanses us from all our sins. That's the verse on which I'm dying. John Wesley said this, his last words, the best of all, God is with us. Daniel Webster who we attribute our dictionary to, the great American statesman, on his deathbed, he asked that the, that the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, we sing it here often, he asked that it be read to him while he was there laying on his deathbed. And the last verse, when it was originally written, is different from the way we sing it. We actually split up the last verse and put it in two different verses. But the way it was originally written, it was written this way. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save, when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. And at that point, when that was read to him, Webster's last words were, amen, amen, amen. You say, PD, why are you talking to us about the last words of dying people? Because one day that's going to be you and that's going to be me. It is. Unless Christ would return, Maranatha, right? Lord, come. One day that's going to be us. And I want everyone who's here today and everyone who's listening online to die the exact same way that Sarah did in faith. In faith. 
The way to die in faith is to do exactly what Sarah and Abraham do, is to live by faith. You see, if you spend your life living by faith, it's fairly easy to die by faith. Now, I'm not saying dying is easy. Dying is an enemy, and, and, and we are made to fight death, are we not? Every ounce of our body is made to fight death. But the way to die in faith is to live in faith. It begins by placing your faith in the one who guarantees your salvation, Jesus and Jesus alone, and then to live by faith. And I would say to you this morning that if you're not prepared to die in faith, you haven't lived life the way that God would intend you to live it. He wants you to be prepared to die in faith. You say, PD, do you know something that we don't know? Yeah, I know that we're all going to die. I just don't know when. But it's a reality. And I don't care how young you are in this room, how many years you think you have, or how old you are, and you realize you may just have days. I want you all, I want myself to die in faith. Because to die in faith means that that faith is rewarded in, in glory. And I've preached too many funerals of people who, by all accounts, did not die in faith. And I want to be honest with you, they're some of the saddest things I've ever preached. I want to end in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. You want to know the best thing you can do for your family? You want to know the best thing you can do for your family? Some of you think the best thing you can do for your family is to leave them a big inheritance. I don't think so. I'm going to spend everything and actually mortgage it to the hilt. <laughs> my, kids, my kids are looking at me like right now like, yeah, we know it's true, Dad. You hate us. <laughs> you want to know the best thing you can do for your family? You want to know the best thing you can leave for your family? Leave them with the knowledge that they sorrow with hope. Let me say that again. Leave them with the knowledge that they sorrow with hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. The greatest thing you can give to your children, the greatest thing you can give to your grandchildren, the greatest thing that you can do for your family is that when you leave this earth, that you leave it knowing that you've left them with hope because they know that you died in faith. And it's not some empty promise like, yeah, dad, when he was 12 years old, prayed a prayer. Now, he never lived anything like the rest of his life. No. It's, it's the fact that you put your faith and trust in Jesus and you lived your life in such a way so that they know when you leave this earth, they know beyond the shadow of a doubt, not just on your proclamation of faith, but by the way you proclaimed it every day that you are a child of God, that you've died in faith. There's only one way to die, and that's in Christ, if you're going to die in faith.
So here's the thing. Every one of us has to wrestle with, am I going to die in faith? Am I die in faith? We don't have to wrestle with whether or not we're going to die. That's going to happen. Am I going to die in faith? Father, what powerful words in, in Hebrews chapter 11. These all died in faith. We thank you for Christ who makes it possible for us to die in faith. Without Christ, none of us could die well. We thank you for the hope that God's word gives to us. Just like Brownlow said, in the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Hallelujah, God. That's, that is our hope that we have been cleansed from sin. And for those this morning who are here who have not experienced that forgiveness of their sins, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. For those in this room that have experienced that salvation, may we rest in it. May we leave a legacy to those who are behind us, not some legacy written on a tombstone, but a legacy of the life that we have lived. A life that has been a life of faith because our faith has been rooted in Christ and in Christ alone. We thank you for what Christ accomplished for us. And may we live in that knowledge well this week, I pray. May we live as those who are prepared to leave this earth at any moment because we know our hope is in Christ. And because of that knowledge, may we be unashamed in our witness for Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.